what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Every day in lockdown life is just like every other day. And it's hard to find the motivation to get up, isn't it? You see, you get up for what is important. Uh, The 1990s supermodel Linda Evangelista once made this notorious quote about herself and her fellow supermodel Christy Turlington. We we have this saying, Christy and I, we don't wake up for less than $10,000 a day. Well, maybe like Linda, what gets you motivated is money. Or maybe it's the new release on Netflix. Or maybe it's watching the Olympics. Uh, Those last two examples probably aren't great because you can stay in bed and still watch those things. Maybe it's the needs of your children that are important enough for you to get out of bed. Or maybe if you're one of those sickeningly highly motivated people, you just get up for exercise or to achieve your life goals. The Apostle Paul once said this in 1 Corinthians 15, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The thing that got Paul out of bed in the, in the morning was the gospel. The gospel of Christ, the message that saved and transformed his life. The message that filled his prayers for others. The message that he lived to proclaim to others. Of first importance, Paul says. In last week's passage, we heard in Matthew 9 of Jesus' compassion that led him to describe people like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. And it was this compassion that led Jesus to pray that God would raise workers for his harvest. But what were these workers to do? They were to proclaim the gospel of Christ to others. And that is what we'll be looking at today, the call of the king to proclaim the gospel. And this is what Jesus is going to say to his followers in Matthew 10. Proclaim the gospel. Be prepared for both peace and judgment. Prepare, uh, proclaim the gospel. Be prepared for peace and judgment. And we're going to look at each of these statements one by one this morning. Well, firstly, let's look at proclaiming the gospel. And we're going to answer these questions. What is the gospel? To whom are we to proclaim the gospel? How should we proclaim the gospel and with what resources? Well, let's have a look at what this gospel is. Well, Jesus, having given authority to his disciples, Jesus is sending them out with this instruction. Verse 7, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come. The gospel is a message. It is literally good news. And the disciples are to do with this good news exactly what Jesus did in his own ministry. In chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus proclaimed this good news of God's coming kingdom. It is central to the ministry of Jesus. And repeatedly we see in the Gospels, Jesus has come to preach the gospel. And the gospel speaks of Jesus as king. And it speaks of a kingdom that is coming. 
and that people need to prepare for this kingdom by repenting and believing in Jesus the King. Jesus is the content, he is the heart of this news because Jesus is going to show in his death and resurrection that we can have a relationship with God and that our sin can be dealt with. And by the time the Apostle Paul is taking this gospel to non-Jews, it's clear that this gospel is so important. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. The ministry of the apostles is to proclaim the gospel, a gospel they receive from Jesus, a gospel that is about Jesus, a gospel that can save from sin and death, a gospel that is so important that you must cling to it in faith. And this gospel is no different to the one that Paul is proclaiming. This gospel is the one that we have received, passed on from generation to generation. It is this same gospel that the scriptures speak of. To whom are we to proclaim this gospel? And here we see that our situation is a bit different to the apostles. In verse 5, Jesus tells them to focus on the lost sheep of Israel. Now, does that mean Jesus is a little bit racist? Of course not. You know, we see in John chapter 4 that Jesus himself was the first one to go to the Samaritans. He spoke to the Samaritan woman. And on that day, many Samaritans believed in Jesus as Messiah. It's not a matter of Jesus being biased, but there are stages in God's history of saving people. First, the gospel comes to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And remember that Matthew's original audience were most likely Jewish believers. And on this first missionary journey, Jesus wants the gospel to spread from Galilee to the rest of Israel. But clearly, Jesus had a bigger picture in mind. By the end of Matthew's gospel, he commissioned, to he commissioned the disciples to take the gospel to all nations. Verse 19, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And this is the command that rem remains for us today. Everyone, everywhere needs the gospel of Jesus Christ because the sheep need their shepherd. Uh, the Olympics has finally started. Uh, proclaiming the gospel is like an Olympic torch relay. The flame is passed from one person to another. For the Sydney Olympics, the Olympic torch was passed through 1,500 people in the South Pacific and in New Zealand. And once the flame reached Australia, 11,000 people carried the flame around Australia until Kathy Freeman lit the Olympic flame at the Sydney Olympic Stadium. 
You see, every generation of believers in Jesus are to do the same. We receive the gospel, we pass it on to others in all corners of the world until the return of King Jesus. Well, how should the gospel be proclaimed? Verse 8, with clear displays of Jesus' power. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. And again, just as Jesus was doing these signs and wonders, the disciples have been given the authority to do the same. They went hand in hand with the gospel, these supernatural displays. They were to show the power of God's kingdom breaking into the world. But by the end of the gospel of Matthew, in that great commission, Jesus does not tell the disciples that the signs and wonders will be the key. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, teaching people to obey Jesus will be the key. So how are we to think about this? We are a church that emphasizes the preaching and the teaching of the gospel of Christ, but there are many churches that would focus on the supernatural stuff. You see, I think the danger of focusing on the supernatural and not the preaching of the gospel is that the miracles by themselves don't lead to faith. In fact, We see in the Gospels that the Pharisees saw Jesus perform miracles and they had no faith in Jesus. In fact, if we expect God to perform the miraculous whenever we want him to, at best it leads to a a shallow consumeristic faith. At worst, we treat God as though he is on our beck and call. But there can be another danger, and that is believing that Jesus no longer does such miraculous displays of power. Uh, Years ago, I attended a conference, and I met two Nepalese men. They were evangelists in the beautiful Pokhara region of Nepal. I've blanked out their faces for security reasons. And they told me how they walked from village to village to share the gospel And they actually showed me how they did this with uh, often people who were illiterate. One of them would speak the words of the gospel and the other would do a sort of simple drama with actions. And they they told me how they were often frustrated because although their priority was to share the gospel, the first thing that they often had to do when they entered the village was to drive out evil spirits and heal the sick often because the local witch doctor would be yelling at them because he was possessed by an evil spirit. And to be able to share the gospel, they first had to silence the evil spirit. And so they were involved in these displays of the much greater power of Jesus over the powers of Satan and his kingdom of darkness. And after this happened, people saw their power and they would bring their sick for them to pray over. And when they shared these things with me, it reminded me so much of what we read in the Gospels. Of course, these things can still happen today. But it also struck me that the priority for these two men was sharing the Gospel and the signs of wonders were secondary. Well, with what resources 
should we proclaim the gospel? In verse 8, Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. Do not uh, get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at the house until you leave. Jesus wants the disciples to travel light in their missionary journey. Uh, I was a scout for a couple of years and the motto of the scouts is be prepared. Be prepared for every situation. Uh, And I find Jesus' teaching here quite challenging because Jesus is saying the opposite. Be dependent. Be dependent on God. Bring enough, just enough. The clothes and the shoes you're wearing, don't bring extra. Don't even bring a bag or money. So Jesus here sets up three principles. Here's one. You never charge people for hearing the gospel. You receive the gospel for free and you share it with others for free. That's what Jesus says in verse 8. Here's another principle. The more prepared you are, the less likely you are to depend on God. In the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, Jesus taught the disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's God who provides for us each and every day, including providing for us when we share the gospel. And God can do that through the generosity of others. As we see in verse 11, he can raise other people who can provide a living for those who share the gospel. At the end of chapter 10, he talks about someone who would even provide a cup of water for those who share the gospel. And here's another principle in verse 10. Jesus says a a worker is worth his keep. And that word keep is important. Jesus is not talking about a wage. Churches don't pay pastors a wage, but a stipend. You see, a wage is what you get for the work that you do, but a stipend is a payment so you can live. And that's an important difference. For example, pastors are not paid performance-based incentives. Imagine what that would do to the gospel. I mean, in the world, you get what you pay for, and the more bang for your buck. So shouldn't we incentivize pastors to grow their churches through performance? That's not how the gospel works, is it? That's not how Jesus works. He is not profit-driven. He's people-driven. A gospel worker doesn't do overtime for more money. A gospel worker does it for Jesus and for his people. But the gospel worker does have a right to a living. Uh, If you've ever benefited from someone sharing the gospel with you, they who shared it with you have a right to a living. You might be in a position to pay something towards them for their living and sharing the gospel. And think of those who take the gospel to communities who can't afford to pay them for that living. Missionaries who go to much poorer communities, gospel generosity convicts us to pay a living for them to share with those communities. 
uh, Dave and Kathy Walter are AFES workers with Christian unions in Queensland and in the South Pacific. Uh, but when I was a student, Dave met with me. He opened the Bible with me and taught me the gospel for the majority of my uni life. And when I graduated, I made the commitment to support Dave and Kathy financially. And that is something Emma and I have done since 1999. Why? Because a worker is worth his keep. Well, on the flip side of this, I've had potential missionaries ask me, is it wrong for me to buy a house? Uh, Is Jesus saying that anyone who decides to proclaim the gospel should never save or never invest for the future? Because wouldn't that be a sign of not depending on God? Again, we have to read the Bible in light of other passages in the Bible. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says that a believer should provide for their household, their own relatives, and not doing so brings disrepute to Jesus. There's no such thing as let go and let God. In fact, that can be a shameful excuse for not fulfilling your responsibility. Christians should diligently provide for their families. And Proverbs 13 goes even one step further to say that a good person leaves an inheritance for future generations. So the thing I've said to potential missionaries is that if you're in a position to buy a house before you become a missionary, there can be wisdom in buying a house, especially in providing for yourself And for your family, for example, when you return from the mission field. But don't let that reason be the reason that holds you back from going. Uh, Especially looking at house prices in Melbourne. If Jesus is convicting you to go and share the gospel, it can be easy to find reasons to put it off, isn't it? As challenging as this pandemic has been on all people, we in Australia live in incredible comfort and we have been protected unlike many other countries. But we should not come to depend on this material comfort and love it so much that we don't take Jesus seriously. We have to heed the warnings in Scripture, don't we? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Houses will not provide us with lasting security that only the gospel can. And love of material things eventually leads to destruction. Uh, Earlier this year, my family and I visited the Fresh Start Presbyterian Church in Donnybrook. A number of families here from Bundy, of households, went to plant that church in that suburb. And what encouraged me was that a number of these households uh, made the decision to buy a house because of the gospel. You see, if you go out to Donnybrook right now, there's just lots of empty house lots. There's still a few farms still. There's not much there. There's one school. There's no shops. There's no hospitals or medical centers. And it's going to take years for those things to come, unlike all the infrastructure we enjoy in our established suburbs. But tens of thousands of people are going to move into that suburb and they are people who need to hear the gospel. 
That's why followers of Jesus are choosing to live there. Jesus says that proclaiming the gospel leads to two very different responses, and we need to be prepared for both. The first response is peace. Verse 11, whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. And if the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. And when Jesus talks about a person being worthy here, he's not talking about them being a good person, a deserving person. He's talking about their receptiveness to the gospel and to the apostles. Receiving those that Jesus has authorized is like receiving Jesus himself. And he says this at the end of chapter 10, whoever welcomes you welcomes me. And as was the custom in the day, the apostles were to bless the households with a greeting of peace. But the measure of whether Jesus' peace would remain on that household was determined on whether they were receptive to the gospel. Peace is a response to the gospel. Peace is a result of the gospel. Peace is what Jesus offers. Colossians 1 verse 19 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross brings real and lasting peace with God. God's anger at our sin has been dealt with, and this is what is on offer when the gospel is proclaimed. It's huge, isn't it? And it's not to be taken lightly. And it is to be received with thankful faith as the wonderful gift that is offered freely by Jesus. But in contrast to those who reject the apostles and the gospel, there is judgment. Verse 14, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. To reject the gospel and those who bring the gospel is to reject Jesus. There are consequences for rejecting the king. Eventually, if you say no to Jesus, he will say no to you. And it was a custom for very religious Jews. Whenever they left, when they were walking out of a Gentile territory and they were re-entering a Jewish territory, they would shake the dust off their sandals as a symbolic way of saying that they didn't want anything to do with the pagan practices of the Gentiles who sat under the judgment of God. Jesus is saying that the shaking the dust off your feet was something the apostles would do as a warning of judgment to anyone who rejected the gospel. This is exactly what Paul did in Acts 13. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, 
But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. To reject Jesus is a serious thing. It is to remain under his judgment. And to bring this message of judgment home, Jesus uses the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, cities synonymous with great wickedness and sin, cities that Lot and his children barely escaped from before God judged. And in the book of Genesis, we see God brought down fiery judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now remember, in the context we're looking at, the disciples are going to Jewish people on their journey and talk of this kind of judgment on Jewish people who would reject Jesus would have been completely unpalatable. A message that would have been offensive just as talk of judgment in our culture is offensive. There is no way that a Jewish person in the time of Jesus would ever think of themselves like Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet here is Jesus saying to his own fellow Jews that even you, when you reject the gospel, you sit under God's judgment. A judgment that's even worse. We forget, don't we? That words of judgment come out of the mouth of Jesus. Talk of hell. Talk of God's wrath against sin. His anger remaining on those who reject Jesus. But if Jesus is king, then he has has the right to be treated as king. And if we say no to Jesus, we cannot expect that he will keep saying yes to us. Eventually, he will give us what we want, and we will sit with the consequences of our sin. And it's an unpopular message today. But it makes Jesus real, doesn't it? You see, often we want people to respond to us in relationship as though they are not real. We want to hear from people who never disagree with us. We want to hear that they are loving towards us. They will just agree with whatever we say, whether it's true or not. In fact, we will cancel people out of our lives when they don't agree with us. We want a relationship on our terms. And that's not real relationship, is it? Jesus is far better and far more real than this. He is compelling, he is confronting, and he is comforting, unlike anyone else you've ever met. People were drawn to him. He was so compelling, and they still are today. But he is so confronting. Did did he just say that? And he is comforting. He will welcome people that even you, would struggle to welcome. In the passages we've been looking at in the last two Sundays, Jesus is the compassionate shepherd who searches out for his lost sheep, but he is also the righteous king who brings judgment for sin. And the cross of Christ tells us how committed Jesus is 
to both. And when we proclaim the gospel of Christ, we must make sure that we do not sell the real Jesus short. We must not emphasize the peace of Jesus at the sake of his judgment. And neither must we overplay his righteous judgment at the expense of the peace he brings. Well, let me tie some of this in application. Proclaim, don't perspire. You see, whenever there is talk of a proclamation of the gospel or evangelism, the dreaded E word, I think most of us start to sweat. Uh, We start to get stressed about sharing the gospel for all sorts of reasons. And let me say why you don't need to sweat for one important reason. And I want you to notice in the passage, Jesus tells his disciples to proclaim the gospel, but he doesn't tell them that they are responsible for the result. You see, whether people are receptive or whether they reject the gospel is not up to you. It has nothing to do with the responsibility of the apostles. Their role is simply to proclaim the gospel. In other words, don't sweat the stuff that's outside your control. Your job is simply to share Christ with others. We often make evangelism much harder than it needs to be. We, we often make ourselves the focus, don't we? It's up to me. I need to get it right. If I don't get it right, then someone's eternal life is stuffed up. But the focus of sharing the gospel is Christ. It's his gospel. It comes with his power, not ours. And all we have to do is share Jesus with others. I'm going to give you some homework, okay? I want you to answer this question. What does Jesus mean to you? What does Jesus mean to you? If he is important to you, if he's made a difference to your life, you should be able to explain why. See if you can do that this afternoon. Grab a piece of paper and a pen. Grab your phone. Write out what he means to you. Better still, find someone to share that with today. Practice sharing that with someone, and then pray that God brings an opportunity for you to share that message with someone who doesn't know Jesus yet. Here's another application. Proclamation of the gospel is a team sport. Proclaiming the gospel is less like golf and more like AFL. You see, if evangelism is like golf, then all you need is one superstar, one pro who wins all the majors, one super gifted individual who does all the evangelism. But you see what Jesus does here, doesn't he? He chooses a team, 12 disciples of varying abilities, varying gifts, and he sends them out. You see, sharing the gospel is not about one person doing the work, but all of us as part of a team. 
An AFL team has 18 players, not to mention interchange and substitutes, but that's just on the field. Off the field, you get a senior coach, you get line coaches, physios, team doctors, strength and conditioning people, sports science, nutrition specialists, psychologists, there's a board, there's a chairperson, there's an operations manager, a CEO, a membership department, a marketing and a communications department. You get the picture, don't you? To win a premiership, is challenging. Just ask any St Kilda supporter. But in order to win a premiership, everyone on the team needs to do their part. And it is the same with proclaiming the gospel. Think of the people who were involved in you becoming a Christian. Maybe it was the Sunday school teacher in your childhood who played a part. Maybe it was a parent who prayed for you. Maybe it was a grandparent who modeled to you. Maybe it was someone you met at a camp who shared the gospel with you. There was a team. Uh, Chris Shaw, one of our pastors, runs our Christianity Explored course, where people get to hear the gospel often for the first time. But not everyone is as gifted with evangelism as Chris, but everyone has a role on the team. People are brought by their friends who have prayed with them and shared their own lives with them. People are praying for these courses. Chris uses Bible study and video resources created by other people. And Chris has run that course with Joe and Ellie helping him. This is a team sport. Uh, Here I am teaching the Bible to you today in an empty auditorium through a live stream. And the fact that this can happen requires a team. Cat maintains the website, which you've accessed to see this live stream. Andrew created the YouTube uh, stream. James and James are here operating the cameras and the live stream. Paul is here operating the sound. And I'm doing this from a building that is maintained by our board, run with finances given by the congregation. Proclaiming the gospel is a team sport, isn't it? And there's a place for you on the team. Don't just watch as a spectator. Ask what you can do on the team. Ask one of us pastors and we can help you to find a way to serve on the team. I'm encouraged that you don't even have to be able-bodied. There are people here who all they can do is pray. And friends, that is vital on the team. Last question, is the gospel of first importance? Uh, Jake Bellardi was an intelligent and articulate student. He was bullied at school, described as a loner by classmates, and in 2012, Jake's mother died of cancer. And the final steps of his radicalization were nearing completion. After years of research on Islam, he said this on his blog, I was growing tired of the corruption and filthiness of Australian society and yearned to live under the Islamic State with the Muslims. He joined Islamic State fighters and fled to Iraq in August 2014, and in 2015, as an 18-year-old, Jake Bellardi carried out a failed suicide bomb attack in Baghdad 
killing only in himself, killing only himself. That is tragic, isn't it? Where do you think Jake grew up? Craigieburn, 20 minutes drive from here in Bandura. I remember feeling heartbroken hearing Jake's story. And I thought at the time, if only someone could have invited Jake to our youth group, because then he would have been welcomed with love by our youth leaders. And he would have heard the good news of Jesus, the shepherd, the king who gave his life for him so that he wouldn't need to take the lives of others. Jake would have heard a message of grace, of hope in his grief, not the message of rejection he received at high school, not the lies of false shepherds that used him and threw him away. And maybe, just maybe, Jake's life would have been different. Is the gospel of first importance? Of course it is. Is the gospel worth getting out of bed for? Of course it is. It is a message of hope, of forgiveness, of eternal life, of unfailing love. Is the gospel of first importance to you. Let me pray. Gracious Father God, Father, we thank you that it is the gospel that saves lost sheep like us. Father, you commission the disciples to Proclaim this gospel to the Jews, but also to the world. And we have heard it, Father, from others. But in turn, Father, please convict us to proclaim this gospel to others who are desperately lost and to, who need the love and the life offered by the shepherd. Help us as a team to work together. And help us to trust in you, Father, for you are the one who provides the power. You are the one who is sovereign over the response. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.